James 1, 19-25 My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. This is the word of the Lord. Kristen for reading. Uh, that's Kristen Rigo. She and her husband James have begun working with us this summer. And two wonderful kids, Liliana and Louie. Pray with me as we unfold the scriptures this morning. Oh, living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand. Understanding, help us to believe. And as we believe, help us to follow you in faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing to learn from the New Testament letter of James, written by a man named James. We believe James was Jesus' brother. So if anybody knows about the way of Jesus, I mean, obviously Jesus, but you would think Jesus' brother is a pretty good candidate And James writes his letter to Christians abroad. A lot of other letters in the New Testament are written to small groups, uh, to churches or gatherings of Christians in certain regions. So they're very context-specific. James, on the other hand, writes to Christians all across what they knew at the time was the world, uh, what today we would call the Middle East. And he's writing to answer this one question, which is basically this. How do I grow and become a more mature Christian? How do I grow and become a more mature Christian? So a lot of the themes we see in James are a little different from what we see in the rest of the New Testament. Other letters in the New Testament are written kind of giving um, an explanation of what the, the basics of the Christian faith, the 101. You might consider James as almost like the 201, Christianity 201 in the New Testament. How do I grow into a more mature faith? The book right after James is called Hebrews. It's written specifically to Jewish Christians. Uh, The author of Hebrews, who's anonymous, we don't know who it was, uh, writes in Hebrews 5 uh, something similar. They say, we want to grow from milk to meat. So like a child grows, you know, an infant drinks milk. That's That's all they drink. They don't eat anything else. They don't have teeth. They can't. But as you grow, we would say it's a little bit odd if you're 15 and you're still only drinking milk. As you grow and as you mature, you want to start eating a more balanced diet. James is kind of answering that question. How do I eat a more balanced diet as a Christian? How do I grow? How do I become mature? How do I become more healthy? From a spiritual infant, so to speak, to a spiritual grown-up. And you might have noticed that he's very direct in his style. Paul, on the other hand, uh, he wrote a lot of the other books in the New New Testament. He's very flowery. He's very wordy. He uses a lot of words that uh, even I still don't really understand. Um, James, James is simple and blunt and to the point. And maybe you've noticed that, especially the past two weeks. He's getting more and more blunt 
In fact, this morning might be the most blunt he's gotten. You notice how he starts? Don't just listen to the word. Do what it says. <laughs> Doesn't get much more simple than that. Don't just listen to the word. Do what it says. Do what it says. Now, in some sense, this is similar to last week, and he's so direct. How do you, how do you say much more about it? But we, we want to unpack a couple of things that he says afterwards where he explains himself because part of being a mature Christian is understanding nuance, and you could take this and run in the wrong direction. You could take this and think, well, the Christianity is just about obedience. It's just about doing the word. What's the word? It's the Bible. It's just, to be a Christian just means to obey the Bible. And if I obey the Bible, I'm a good Christian. And if I don't obey the Bible, I'm a bad Christian. End of story. That's not what goes on in the Christian faith. So we're going to, we're going to, I mean, everything's framed through this one statement. Do what the word says. It's pretty simple. But we have to be careful we don't fall into this trap of thinking that our behavior can earn God's approval. Do what God's word says. Now, James equates in these verses God's word and God's law. You'll notice in verse 22, he talks about the word. In verse 25, he talks about the law, but he's, using, he's talking about the same thing. We know that because he connects the two with a common image, a mirror, which we'll talk about later in the sermon. But there's really no trick meaning that God's law, his word, is, is everything God tells us to do in the scriptures. Now, that's a long list. It's a really long list. In the Old Testament law alone, and when we say Old Testament law, that's not the whole Old Testament. That's like two or three books, basically. Uh, Jewish scholars have counted 639 different commandments. Now, I, can't, I can hardly keep track of like the Ten Commandments. Now try to keep track of 639 commandments. You can't. So let's, let's dig into that. I hope, I hope it's raising this question in your mind. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've heard me preach for any length of time, I hope this question is coming up in your mind. Wait a minute, Chris. You keep saying, the Bible keeps teaching that our faith is about grace. It's not about good works and behavior and moralism and obedience. If our faith is about grace, 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 then how can James suddenly say so strongly, do what it says, obey? Isn't he contradicting what Christianity is all about? It's a good question. So this morning, you can, I would urge you, keep um, the scripture in front of you if you have your program. Uh, the chunk that's on the second page is what we're really drawing from. So keep that part. We're actually going to work backwards to the beginning. So we're going to start at the end, and then we're going to work our way to the beginning. And really, we're trying to answer this question. If our faith is all about grace, then why does it matter what we do? If God is a God of mercy then won't he just have mercy on me regardless? Why does it matter if I do the right thing or not? There's kind of a tension between law and grace. Do you see? We've probably all felt it to some extent. And our faith is fundamentally a grace-filled faith, but this morning, let's dig into the law a little bit. First, remember this. This is very, very important to notice. 
James is writing to Christians. James's letter is written to Christians. It's not written to what we might call the general public. He assumes that we're relatively secure, at least cognitively, in our identity, that we are deeply loved by God no matter what. A Christian is not somebody who is perfect. A Christian is not somebody whose good deeds just happen to outweigh their bad deeds. A Christian is somebody who knows deep in their soul that God loves them no matter what. And through Jesus' death on the cross, their sins are forgiven. Through his resurrection, uh, they are ushered into new life. Nothing, nothing can strip that away. Hear me clearly. If you're a Christian, nothing can strip away your identity in Christ. So James is not saying, do the law, do what God says, and then God will love you. No, God already loves you. He's writing to Christians. If you have your Bible open, you can flip back to the beginning of James chapter 1, and you'll see he addresses the letter to what he calls the brothers, which in ancient cultures was a way of saying Christians. This is to people who have already been changed by grace. Think about it this way. He's not saying, do what God says, and then God will love you more, any more than any good parent would say that. Imagine if a parent, and I want to be careful here because some of you, some of you may have had experiences like this. A, a parent, if a parent told their child, I will only love you if you obey me, or if a parent told their child, I'll love you more only if you obey me, I, I think we would all agree that's bad parenting. And I, I tread carefully here because my sense is, I, I know this to some extent, and there's probably more of this than I even realize, that some of you have felt that. Maybe you heard it explicitly, or maybe it was just communicated through actions. But good parenting, and by the way, here's part of the problem with that, is whether we like it or not, our parents model God to us. So how we see our parents is how we tend to see God. How our kids see us as parents is how our kids tend to see God. Good parenting begins with loving your child unconditionally no matter what. I heard it said once uh, that, that true love, like the true love of a parent, is letting your kid tell you, I hate you, and still loving them through that. That's good love. That's parental, unconditional love. The goal of following God's law is not to earn God's love any more than a child should obey their parent just to get their parent to love them. So what is the goal of following the law? Why does it matter? Again, if God already loves us, well, James tells us in verse 25 towards the end, he says it's freedom. You see that little, little line? It's almost a throwaway line, but it's so critical. Don't miss this. He says God's perfect law gives freedom. God's perfect law gives freedom. Think about it this way. Um, there's a difference between how you might coach or, or teach a child to learn the piano and how you might coach or teach a, a professional concert pianist to, to play the piano, right? How do you teach a kid to learn the piano, a five-year-old kid to learn the piano? You teach them hot cross buns, which is maybe objectively the most obnoxious song that's ever been written. 
but you teach them hot cross buns, and they kind of plunk out hot cross buns, and it's a bad song, and they play it badly. So like the, the mediocrity compounds on itself, and you say, you're doing great. Even though they're not, you're doing great. What is that? That's kind of like the unconditional, no matter what. You're sitting down, you're trying, you're working it out. I'm proud of you. What are you doing? You're trying to instill the love of music. You're trying to, you're trying to build them up. Now imagine taking the same approach with a, a concert pianist. How does, that, how does somebody who's a professional, any professional piano player or any, any professional anything for that matter get good? Through practice. But you know what a professional musician does? They don't sit down and plunk out hot cross buns eight hours a day. That's not how you learn to play Rashmaninoff. No, you sit there and you sweat through, through scales. And, and if you're a musician, you know like scales stink. There's nothing fun about practicing scales. But you practice over and over, and professionals will practice hours a day. These, these monotonous, tedious scales. Why? Because it gives them freedom. Once you know your scales, you are free to play a much broader variety of music. If you, if you switch the metaphor just a little bit, think not maybe not classical music, but jazz music. A jazz musician who, who practices their scales, eventually, when they're good enough, develops the freedom to improvise. And those of you who love jazz music know there's, there's something magical about jazz improv. There's a freedom that comes from it. And you only learn it within the rules, within following the law, so to speak, that these notes work well together and these notes don't. You see? There's actually greater freedom within boundaries than if there are no boundaries at all. Imagine trying to teach your five-year-old who can barely plunk out ha cross buns to, to play a jazz piece. It'd be miserable. It's not a proper freedom. When you're already secure in God's love and when you practice his law, when you do what the scriptures say, it leads to freedom. Remember, following God, obeying him, that doesn't make him love you more. He already loves you more than you can possibly wrap your mind around. But when you're secure in his love and then you practice, so to speak. Remember we talked about spiritual practices earlier in the month or last month. You become free. So as it turns out, freedom, freedom is both the fuel and the goal of following God's law. It's the fuel and the goal of following God's law. Here's what I mean by that. First, it's the fuel. If you, if you, try, to do what, if you try to do what the Bible says, if you try to be moral, without being convinced of God's love, you won't be free. You'll feel enslaved. Because all you see is this list of 639 commands. Actually, it's just like 639 commands in these pages. And then all the rest of these, how in the world? I can't possibly. That's not freedom. That's slavery. You see? If you're not convinced of God's love, you will never be free. Not even free to follow his rules because you'll keep trying to follow his rules and you'll never know if he loves you. You'll always be insecure and anxious. Do you see the problem? And if you, get good at, if you get good at following the rules, like some people get good at it anyway, then you'll just be arrogant and kind of obnoxious. And like we all know the person who's good and knows they're good. 
Knowing God's love is the fuel for following. In other words, we can't follow his law without being convinced of his love, not in a free way. But it's also the goal. Because as we know we're deeply loved and as we work to follow his law, it leads to even greater freedom. It leads to even greater freedom. What do I mean by that? But Jesus says uh, about God's law, he says all of God's law can be summed up. So this whole book, in essence, can be summed up in two commandments. You remember what he says? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. In a sense, it's that simple. Notice what both of those have in common. There's no mention of you. There's no mention of you in either of those. I mean, sure, it's implied that you do these things, but it's not about what you do. It's about serving God and serving others, loving God and loving others. So as you grow in love for God and as you grow in love for others, you know the freedom of not being so self-conscious all the time. You see, following God makes us free. Now we have to ask, okay, so what, what if I don't? What if I decide, you know, I just, I don't buy it. Now remember, this is written to Christians, so really we're asking this, this question in the context not of somebody walking down the street who, I just don't, I don't really buy the Christian faith, and we're not really talking about them. We're talking, James is writing to, he's writing to church people. He's writing to church people. Here's how we know, if you, if you go back a little bit, look at verse uh, 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says. So we're really zeroing in on the people who don't do what it says, but it's the people who don't do what it says and who listen to the word. Somebody who doesn't claim to follow Jesus doesn't listen to God's word. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says, it's like they're looking at their face in a mirror and after they look at themselves, they go away and immediately forget what they look like. Remember, James is talking to Christians, so people who hear God's word but don't do what it says. They don't obey it. What does James say? He says, if that's you, then you're like someone who looks in a mirror and then go off on your own business and forget what you look like. Now, that's, that, that tripped me up like, what? What does that mean? But I started thinking, I had to really think about kind of the, the deeper I thought, the more the, the obvious meaning came, which is this. Why do you look in a mirror? Did, you look in a, did, did, did anybody not look in a mirror this morning? I'm just curious. I've, I've, every one of us looked in a mirror this morning. Why? Why did you look in the mirror? I'll tell you why I looked in the mirror this morning, to find everything wrong with me and fix it. Like, that's why you look in a mirror, right? So I got out of the shower, and I looked in the mirror, and I saw that I've got a little bit of stubble, just a little, because I'm not really gifted in growing beards, but I've got, so that's got to go. So I shaved that away, and then my hair was a hot mess, and so then I've got to fix my hair. And you see, like, when you look at him, you're putting on your makeup. You're, when you're just looking in the quick mirror before you go out to make sure you don't have that little bit of spinach in your teeth, why do you look in a mirror? You're looking, you're actually looking in a mirror to look for things that are wrong with you, so that you can fix them, so that you can look better, right? The only other option I can think is that I guess maybe some people, some people just think like, I look good, and they just, <laughs> is this any, I hope this isn't anybody in here, and they're like, I'm going to look in a mirror just to admire myself. Anybody? Ron Burgundy? Um, 
That's, that's vain. <laughs> that's arrogance. None of us really thinks like, I'm just going to look in the mirror to, to admire myself. You look in the mirror to find that piece of spinach that's stuck in your tooth and to get it out. And to get it out. That's the important part. James says someone who, who, who hears God's word and doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks in the mirror and then goes off about their business and forgets what they look like. It would be like if Pastor Chris came in and hadn't done his hair one day. I looked in the mirror and I thought, I should do something about that, and then didn't. You go off and you've still got that little fleck stuck right there in your tooth. The mirror doesn't do you any good if you don't do anything with it. So what's the mirror? Well, James says the mirror is God's word. It's his law. So let's think about this connection here. If the mirror is God's law, then what, what is God's law? What is this? The, the law parts, the command parts of the Bible, because there are parts in the Bible that tell us what to do. What are those meant to do? Just like a mirror. We see ourselves in the law, and we see our shortcomings. We see our flaws. I see that I really need to shave, or I need to get that piece of spinach out of my tooth. I see the set of rules, and I see, oh my God, oh my goodness, I haven't been loving my neighbor. I haven't been loving the Lord my God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength. It's a set of, it, is a, it is a set of rules, but it's, it's not just a set of rules to be blindly followed. We follow them for a reason. And part of the function of God's law, not all of it, but part of it, especially the rules part, is like looking in a mirror for us to see ourselves clearly. Now, that's a dangerous thing because when we really start to look at God's law, that means we're going to see some parts of ourselves that don't measure up to the standard God has set. In other words, when you see yourself in the mirror of God's law, you will see your sin. You will see all the ways you don't measure up. Which means, one, you have to be secure in the fact that God loves you before you even start to do that, or else it will cripple you. And when you see that, you have two choices. You can either take it to heart or you can, I guess, ignore it. You can go out in public with spinach in your teeth. In other words, you can go out claiming to be a Christian, claiming to be a churchgoer, but everyone around you can see that fleck of spinach right there. In other words, they, they see your actions, and if your actions don't align with God's word, everybody else will see whether or not you've forgotten. Which means, look back at verse 22, you end up deceiving yourself. This is, really, this is a really important note, and I want to draw a sharp distinction. Let me just read verse 22 again. Don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves. James is not saying that if you don't, again, this is to Christians. James is not saying if you don't do what's in this Bible, you are condemned. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says if you hear what's in this book and don't do what it says, you're deceiving yourself. There's a difference there. 
that's a very dangerous place to be. In other words, I say I'm a Christian. I think I'm a Christian. I heard God's law. I heard his word. I go to church. I got baptized. My family's a good church-going family. I do all the right external things. James says, don't deceive yourself. Those things are not what really matter. What really matters is God's word, is his law. How do I grow and become a more mature Christian? By learning to love God's word, including the law parts, including the rules parts, Why? Not because I have to live up to every single rule in order to earn God's love, but because those things help me to see myself more clearly. And as I work through those, they lead to what? Remember from the beginning? Freedom. Freedom. If we hear God's word and don't do what it says, we deceive ourselves and we end up enslaved either to our own standard and us always trying to figure out what's right or wrong, or trying to live up to God's standard, but without God's power. It'd be like sailing without the, trying to sail without any wind. You need wind in your sails. If you're not walking with Jesus, none of these things matter. (laughs) Like we've got a whole different, so let me just, I, I know I've said it a lot, but this is so important. If you're not a Christian, if you don't, if you don't buy it, this sermon really isn't for you. It's really not for you. So what does God's word tell us to do? It's a long list. The the best answer, the best thing I can tell you is read it. (laughs) You'll learn over time. Maybe a a healthy approach would be um, you could go to somewhere like Galatians 5. Galatians 5, Paul doesn't tell us what to do, but he, he gives us kind of the marks of a healthier or more mature Christian. He uses a, an image called the fruit of the Spirit. The idea is, is pretty simple, that a healthy tree bears healthy fruit. A, an unhealthy tree bears unhealthy fruit. So you know a healthy tree because the fruit looks good. The Christian life, the fruit of a healthy, mature Christian life is this. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness goodness, faithfulness, that means you follow through on your promises, gentleness, self-control. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7. He says, you know a tree by its fruit. He just, I, when I was describing this, I'm just taking the words out of Jesus' mouth. Matthew 7, you know, you know a tree by its fruit. An unhealthy tree doesn't produce ripe fruit. And a healthy tree doesn't produce rotten fruit. There's one more little conundrum here that I want to address real quick. Some of you uh, are very, like, conscience-based, and and things like this will just prick your conscience, and you'll get very, very, very worried and wonder, oh my gosh, is this me? Am I deceiving myself? Am am, am I safe? Am I okay? Like, where do I fall? Am I one of these people who, who hears the word and doesn't do what it says? And what then? And you'll kind of spiral and spiral. Stop spiraling. First, 
let me point out that I wouldn't worry too much about am I safe, am I okay, language of am I in or am I out. You may remember a few weeks ago we talked about the difference between a bounded set and a centered set. That's just not really helpful as a rubric. But secondly, I would say this. The people who are most cut to the heart when they hear something like what James is teaching here tend to be the people who are least prone to actually deceiving themselves. And vice versa, the people who hear this and it just bounces right off them, they think, I don't need to worry about that. They tend to be the people who are most likely to deceive themselves. You see, there's a deep irony here that the people who most need to hear this are the ones who are least likely to listen. So don't deceive yourself, James says. Look at the law. Look at the law. What's the purpose of God's law? There's, there's more to it, but for the purposes of this morning, what's the purpose of God's law? It's a mirror. And you look through, and by the way, listening, when he says listen to God's law, that listen to his word, I mean, that means we engage with the scriptures and we're constantly soaking in it. Let me tell you, the more you read this, a couple things will happen. One, the more you will see all the places that God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and nothing can pluck you out of my hands. Secondly, you'll get to law parts and you'll see ways that God wants us to live and you'll think, oh my goodness, I don't measure up. And then you'll get to Jesus and you'll hear him say, it was never about you measuring up in the first place. You can't measure up. You can't. It's not possible for you to do everything that's written in this book. And then it gets worse. Because the less you follow God's law, the more you find yourself on a path straight to death. Straight into absolute destruction. And then the more you look in God's law and in his word, you'll see, wait a minute. That here we have this incredible standard that God sets. And we have this absolute path to destruction that we're on. And you see a loving and merciful God who refuses to let that be the trajectory, but who reaches down, who became one of us. God himself became human, one of us, subject to the law, we read in Romans, and actually followed the law. In this, in this remarkable event, we found out that the only one who can actually do what the Word says is the Word himself. Jesus kept every law, only person in the world who's ever done it in all of history, and then died so that we might have a place to turn around. Not even to turn ourselves around, but so that he might reach down and grab you from that trajectory straight to death and destruction and say, no, I want you to have life. I want you to have life. Don't run from the law. Don't run. Yes, it will be uncomfortable. You'll have to come to terms with your sin. But the more you come to grips with your sin, the more you come to grips with the beauty of a Savior who said, I will not let you destroy yourself. Don't, don't, don't let this bounce off of you. Don't let it skip off like a rock against a smooth lake. Let it penetrate you.
so that you can know more and more the profound love of the God who has rescued you into life. Let's pray. Lord, teach us. Teach us with your law. Use, use even your law, the parts that feel uncomfortable, the parts that feel like judgment, and use those parts to show us that there is, in fact, a judgment. But for those who are in Christ, you leveled your judgment on your own son in our place so that when we stand before you, you would see nothing but perfection. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. But just like we sang at the beginning of the service, this is amazing grace that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross, that you laid down your life that I might be set free. So Jesus, would we sing of all that you've done for us? Teach us with your word. Help us to become men and women of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.